Let me start with a question for you today. What is the primary purpose of the church? Let's get specific. What is the primary purpose of our church? Good News Baptist Church. What, what are we here for? Well, we have all kinds of ideas, uh, and if you take surveys of the average Christian church, uh, there's, there's many answers to that question. And of course, not all answers can be correct ones. Uh, some of the answers that uh, I've seen given for this question of what is the primary purpose of the church, well, here's one of them. A large number of people would rank fellowship as first. And so they want, uh, the, the, the people who would say this, they want to associate uh, with fellow Christians who share similar beliefs and values. Uh, they value activities and programs that the church provides for the entire family. And those things, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing, by the way. Uh, some Christians consider sound Bible teaching to be the church's primary purpose. So the main emphasis for these people is, would be they want to focus on the exposition of Scripture. They want to expose it, bring, bring it out. What, what is the Scriptures saying and meaning, and how can we apply that? Some people consider praise of God to be the primary purpose of the church. And those are all good things. All of those emphases are certainly biblical. You can find them in various places in your Bible. And, and, and they certainly should characterize every local church. But, here's the but, they do not represent the primary purpose of the church. All of those things, as important as they are, come under a, a primary thing. There, there is an umbrella that hangs over all of those. So the primary purpose of every church and every local church is to glorify God. Which is why, if you have a church constitution, you'll notice in article number two of the church constitution, it says, Good News Baptist Church exists in Hamilton, New Zealand, solely for the purpose of glorifying God in every aspect of ministry. And if you look on the very first page of our constitution, it has underneath that that primary purpose of why we're here is there's all kinds of other things that we do to glorify God. And you might ask, well, how can I glorify God? And the answer is found in the... It's, it's the same way that God glorifies Himself. The supreme way in which God chose to glorify Himself was through the redemption of sinful men and women like us. It is through the participation, by the way, in that redemptive plan that believers, all Christians, can most glorify God. So as sinners are transformed from death to life and from darkness to light, God is glorified through that gracious miracle. So the glory of God is seen in His loving provision to redeem lost souls. Therefore, Christians, all Christians who desire to honor God, all Christians who desire to glorify God, must be about His business, doing the same thing that He has chosen to glorify Himself. 
So God's supreme purpose is to glorify Himself. And so the Christian then who desires to honor God's supreme purpose must share God's love for this lost world and then share in His mission to redeem the lost to Himself. Do you see the the pattern there? I hope you do. Well, there are some who certainly disagree with that. So let let me just uh, encourage you to put your thinking cap on here for a moment, okay? If, then, God's primary purpose for saved is fellowship, just think about this. If that was the case, then why would God not take all believers immediately to heaven? And you say, why? Well, you think about that. What's heaven like? In heaven, spiritual fellowship is perfect. Spiritual fellowship is unhindered by sin, and there, and there is no such thing in heaven as loneliness. So why would God not take all believers immediately to heaven if that is the primary purpose of the church? Of course, God hasn't done that, so there must be something else then. Okay, then let's move on to the second one. If God's primary purpose for the saved then was for us to just sit around and learn His Word then again, why would He not take all believers immediately to heaven? After all, think about that. Why? Because in heaven, again, it's perfect. Perfect knowledge. Perfect understanding. We have the living Word. The written Word. No, Again, no sin. Perfect wisdom and understanding. So that can't be it. Well, if God's primary purpose for the saved then were to give praise to God, again, He would take believers immediately to heaven. And you ask why? Again, well, think about heaven. In heaven, what's it like? Praise is perfect, again. We have perfect praise, perfect people, perfect God, perfect situation, and, and, and the praise there is not only perfect, but unending. You can read about it in places like Revelation 4 and 5. Therefore, there is only one reason that Christ has allowed His church to remain on earth, and it's the same reason that Jesus came. It should be the reason why you celebrate Christmas. Jesus says why He came in several places in the Gospels. One of those, Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. That is the reason Christ allows His church to remain on earth. In our text today, Matthew ends with the great... You've probably heard it called the commission. I'd like to call it the great mission. The great mission for Christ's church. And in order to fulfill this great mission, Christ's followers must take heed to the various implications that are based in this text. There is one command in the text, which I'll highlight for you, but, but centered, you know, around that center of that command are several implications that I want to highlight for you in our text. So let's read the text, and then we'll talk about it, okay? Matthew 28, let's start in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples... By the way, who's missing? Remember, Judas has committed suicide. He's gone. So we got the other eleven disciples here, right? So now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And that ends the book of Matthew. Like I said, there's several implications that are based in this text that we need to take heed to in order for us who are Christ followers to fulfill this great mission. So let's take a look at the first one's actually found in verse 16. And, and I gotta, I gotta say, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to Pastor John MacArthur for highlighting this one for me. Uh, and, and here it is. Uh, I've worded it in my own way, but it, it's we need to be available. Be available. Did you notice in the text this implication is seen here in the fact that the disciples, these 11 disciples, that is, were highlighted here for us, were exactly where the Lord Jesus Christ had told them to be. He had told them this when he was down in Jerusalem, down in in the southern part of Israel. And so they've traveled back up to the region of Galilee here. Because uh, verse 16 says that now the 11 disciples went to Galilee and they specifically go to this mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And so because they had obeyed the Lord Jesus Christ, they were re- now receiving this great commission, this great mission. Someone uh, has, has said about a believer's service to God that the greatest ability is availability. I'm not sure if I can argue with that. Just, just think about that for a moment. If, if the greatest ability is availability, well, you think about that. Uh, there, there's plenty of talented Christians who've got great talent and gifts, but they, they, they kind of like just sit on their hands doing nothing with the gifts that God has given to them. They don't serve God, even though they're some of the most talented people in the world. Well, what use is that if they're not available for God to use? They're, they're of no use. They're of no value. So that's why some have said the greatest ability is availability. These disciples obeyed. They, they're making themselves available. They're doing like what the prophet Isaiah does in chapter 6, saying, here am I, Lord, you know, send me. They've made themselves available. Let's talk about what faithful discipleship is not. There's unfortunately some confusion around this. What is it not? Well, number one, faithful discipleship does not begin with knowing where you will serve the Lord. Some people think that way. Well, you know, I've got to know exactly where God wants me to go and, you know, how much money I'm going to make and, you know, how big of a bank account do I need and, you know, which country and, and which house and, you know, what church or whatever, you know, they got to know all these sort of things. They got to have it all planned out before they, they go and do anything for God. Well, that's not how it works. Uh, some would say that, uh, well, let me just say it this way. It, faithful discipleship is not beginning with knowing in what capacity you're going to serve God. Just think about that. If <laughs> those of you who are more mature in years, if God had showed you, like on some movie screen, for example, of what was going to happen over the, over the next 20, 30, 40 years of your life, and he showed that to you all at once, you'd probably freak out. That would be scary. I, I, would, I personally would not have wanted to see what was going to happen over the last 20 years of my life. But God has been gracious to me, 
and, and he just leads me step by step. He's, he's given me his, his word, which is a light to my path. And he just guides me along, gives me grace for today. And tomorrow he'll give me grace for tomorrow. And two days he'll give me some more grace for that day. And just continually leads me. And eventually, you, if you continually walk in his steps day by day, you end up doing his will. And you end up doing what he wants you to do. Well, faithful discipleship does not start with having a clear call to a certain ministry. Uh, <laughs> I had people you know, wondering about me, by the way, when God called me to ministry when I was 15, but I didn't know exactly what that was going to look like, okay? Uh, I just knew, okay, well, <laughs> I'm 15, God wants me to go to school. <laughs> I don't know what that's going to look like down the road, you know, I don't know who God wants me to marry, if He wants me to marry, I don't know if does he want me to be a pastor, a missionary, a Christian school teacher? I was, I, was, I was asking all kinds of questions, kind of worrying about those sort of things, which I shouldn't have been doing. And then even when I went off to, to a Christian university to study the Bible and prepare for ministry, I still didn't know. And then I graduated four years later from this Christian university and still didn't know. <laughs> you know, what, what, what ministry does God want me to be involved in? And then even even farther on down the line, my, my future father-in-law was asking me, hey, Scott, uh, you know, you really need to have a job in order to marry my daughter. You know, what's going on? I don't know. I'm still praying. <laughs> you know what? God doesn't show us all those things, you know, way ahead of time. It's okay. We don't need to have some kind of a clear calling to a certain ministry in our lives to 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 be... Uh, involved in faithful discipleship. Well, n- number four, it does not start with knowing what occupation God wants you to do. You know, you don't, you don't need to know, you know, hey, am I going to work at a factory? Am I going to be a secretary? Am I going to be a pastor of a church or a missionary or, you know, an engineer or whatever? You know, it, you don't need to know all that stuff before you can serve God. You just do what God wants you to do now and He will lead you. So, what is faithful discipleship? Well, it begins with simply being available to God. In other words, let me put it this way. You must set aside your preconceived ideas. You must set aside your reservations. You must set aside your will in exchange for God's will. and For what His ideas are for you. Well, the first implication we see in the text is be available. You cannot fulfill this great mission unless, first of all, you and I and the church and and our local church is available to serve God. Number two, second implication is genuinely worship God. Genuinely worship God. In verse 17 it says, And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. Him. I'm assuming that's referring to the 11 disciples worshipped Him. But you'll notice, apparently, there were other followers of Jesus who were there. There were many followers of Jesus. At least 500. Because <laughs> you can read about them in the Bible. And so, apparently, out of the 500 plus, some doubted, though. But Jesus helped them, was gracious to them. But we see these 11 disciples coming. They're making themselves available. They're obeying their Lord, Jesus Christ. 
and genuinely worshiping him. And you say, well, why is this important? Well, just like being available is important, so is genuine worship of God. Because when God is not truly worshipped, we cannot truly serve Him. After all, what is service anyway? It's just a a form of worship. In this text, we see the the moment Jesus appears, what are the disciples doing? I don't know, it doesn't say exactly. All we see is they genuinely worshipped. But I'm assuming they're prostrating themselves in adoration before their Lord. That was typically what the Jews would do. And so when they, here they, they see their risen Savior, their sorrow then turns into hope. Their focus here is on Jesus Christ. And by the way, that is the essence of true worship. Focus on Jesus Christ. True worship is something that is single-minded. It is something that is unhindered. It is an unqualified concentration on the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's what worship is. It is directed toward a person. So with that in mind, I I want to bring you to the main idea for our text today, which is on the screen. Here, Here, I believe this is the main idea, which you'll see in the text. Because of Christ's authority and presence, all Christians are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe Jesus' commands. Right? So we'll, we'll break that, all those phrases up and, and look, see how that is in our text. First of all, we see in verse, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 18, we see that we must believe in Christ's authority. That is the third implication. Believe in Christ's authority. <clears throat> look at verse 18. Because Jesus comes and he, he says to, to these disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. By the way, that phrase, heaven and earth, that's just everything, okay? So Jesus is just saying, I made it all. It's mine, therefore I own it. I have all authority over it. So we must believe in Christ's authority. Otherwise, how can we possibly fulfill this great mission? It's not possible. Because we have no authority. We own nothing. Even our very bodies, the Bible says, belong to Jesus Christ. He bought them. He purchased them. And so as Jesus gathers here with his disciples on this mountain, he's not starting with a command. The the command's coming in a moment, but here he's starting with his authority. He's starting with a claim. He's making an amazing claim. This isn't the first time he's made this claim in Matthew. And this is very important because Jesus' authority is the foundation, the basis here for everything else that follows in the text. How can he possibly make these other statements if he has no authority? Or or not the highest authority, at least. So therefore, his authority over heaven and earth means several things for us. Number one, Jesus' authority means this, that, that Jesus is the personal Lord and Savior over you. Do you believe that? By Lord, that means master. We see this throughout the scriptures. One of my favorites is in Philippians chapter 2, where uh, the Apostle Paul made this statement that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It's going to happen. That will happen at a second coming. So Jesus is the personal Lord and Savior over you. 
But it also means this, that Jesus is the universal Lord and Savior over all nations, tribes, tongues, and people groups. Uh, we, we see that uh, being played out in places like Revelation 4 and 5, where up in heaven there, there's all these tribes and nations and tongues and, and people groups there worshiping the Lamb who was slain. So let's consider some of the ways this has played out in the book of Matthew, just so you can kind of get a big picture here. We've seen in Matthew so far that Jesus has authority over things, for example, number one, over nature itself. We've seen Jesus calm the Sea of Galilee just by speaking to it. We've seen Jesus' authority over disease. When Jesus speaks, we see blind people now seeing. We see lame people walking. We see lepers being healed of their leprosy. And we, we see disease is gone. We see Jesus' authority even over the demons. When Jesus speaks, the demons flee. They, they come out of people. <laughs> they can't stay there because Jesus even commands the demons. We see Jesus' authority over sin and death. We see Jesus even raised his friend Lazarus from the grave in John chapter 11, for example. But we've seen it at other things as well. So he, he had this ability to even forgive sin itself. And he was accused of blasphemy in doing that. He also had the authority to even overcome man's ultimate enemy, which is death itself. Well, if he has the power over sin, well, then logical progression is, of course he's going to have power over death, because the wages of sin is death. We, we see Jesus has authority over your life. So his authority is extended not into just your body itself, according to 1 Corinthians, but every area of our life. Your bank account, your mind, right? Even the greatest command says you're to love God with all your mind, your strength, your soul, your entire being. Everything belongs to Him. So your, your family, your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, your house, your car, everything. So, not just you, by the way. Jesus' authority is over every individual who has ever lived, who is living, and ever will live. And so this great commission, or mission, you can call it that, is not a man-made program. Sometimes you kind of get that idea when you, when you follow what some churches do, or you listen to the way some preachers preach. You might think, well, it, oh, well that sounds like a man-made program. It's not. It's not. This is coming from Jesus' authority himself as the head of the church. So we see also that Jesus' authority is what compels us to go. We go in his name, in his authority. So think about this. We, we, we support missions. Hopefully you, you all love the idea of supporting missions. Hopefully in, in the future we can do even more. But missions only make sense then if Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and in earth. However... We don't go reluctantly. We don't go grudgingly, you know, whining and complaining, dragging our feet. <clears throat> oh, what was me? I have to give to missions or I have to go to, <clears throat> you know, some third world country or whatever. And you say, well, why don't we give reluctantly? Or at least why should we not uh, be involved in missions reluctantly? Well, number one, his, his worth, that is Jesus' worth, is actually the fuel for our mission. 
Jesus' worth is the fuel of our mission. You know, why? What, what is it that stirs us? What is it that keeps us going? What lights the fire, so to speak? Well, we go because Jesus is worthy of worship. So the Savior deserves all praise. And so we long, of course, at least I'm, I'm longing for all people groups, all people's tribes, tongues, and nations of the earth to actually say Jesus is Lord and to mean it. Well, that reminds us then of, of another point, that His worship, Jesus' worship, is then the goal of our mission. So not only is it the fuel that, that's lighting the fire, keeping this mission going, but it's the goal. So all followers of King Jesus should live for this day that we see in Revelation 4 and 5 that uh, every tribe and tongue and, and people, group and nation is going to gather around the, the throne of God. They're going to give Him the glory and the honor that He is due. And so while the Great Commission compels us to go, we're not left on our own in this mission. You say, why? Well, Jesus' authority gives us confidence as we go. Jesus' authority gives us confidence as we go. Boy, if it was, it was up to my confidence, I'd, I would sit on my hands doing nothing. But I, I don't want to do that because I have Christ's authority. Well, who are we to, to go to someone? Think about that. Who are you? Who am I? to go to someone and tell them that they're following false idols. That's offensive, isn't it? To get in, you know, hopefully not literally, but, you know, you kind of get in someone's face and say, you know, hey, what are you trusting in? What are you living for? What's your purpose to life? And then, and then you come, and if they say something other than Jesus, then you have to shatter their false idol. Who are we to tell them that if they're not putting their faith in Jesus, they're going to spend eternity in hell? Well, the world views that as arrogant, narrow-minded, bigoted, to name a few words. However, though, if you think about this, if the gospel according to Matthew is, is true, and I certainly believe it is, then telling a lost world about Jesus is the only thing that makes sense. It is the loving thing to do, isn't it? Of course it is. What does not make sense, though, uh, for me at least, wasn't, what doesn't make sense is we have millions of Christians around the world who are sitting back and saying nothing to the nations. There's literally thousands upon tens of thousands of Christians who have never reproduced themselves. They haven't made a disciple ever in their Christian life. Shame on us. We ought to go with confidence knowing that the very one who sent us is sovereign over all things. He is worthy of worship from all peoples. Well, let's talk about some promises that we can hold on to as we're hopefully engaging a lost world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Here's the first promise. I love this. It's precious. The gospel of Jesus will save. It will save. It is powerful. I love the way Paul says it in Romans 1.16, that we're not to be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. By the way, he goes on, that's for the Jew and the Gentile, the Greek. So the gospel of Jesus will save. It doesn't matter where or who. I mean, God saved 
Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, can't get much harder than that guy was. God saves people like that. He can save anyone. The second promise that we can hold on to as we engage a lost world is that Christ's mission will succeed. How do we know? How do we know? Well, Christ's authority, number one, guarantees that. I mean, after Jesus spoke His final words to His disciples, what did He do? Well, if you read in in Acts chapter 1 and 2, we find Jesus, He ascends to heaven. He goes to His God the Father's throne. And there we, we see that the Bible tells us that Jesus empowers His people. He's directing His people. He's, he's, it's like he's, he's working there on our behalf, guiding, directing, providing, empowering us with everything that we need to bring this mission to completion. He said He would send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, and He has. My friends, if you're a believer, do you, you understand you have the third person of the Trinity residing within you. You don't get any greater power than that. (laughs) Nothing greater than that. So this leads to the next part. (sighs) Obey Christ's command. In order to fulfill this great mission, we must obey Christ's command. Look at verse 19. We see the command here, which says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, let me just start with what this is not. I'll I'll start with the negative first, and then we'll explain what it is. This is not a comfortable call for us uh, where we're invited to just come and and get baptized and to sit in one location for the rest of our lives. (laughs) That is not what Jesus is saying here. Uh, but sadly, that's what we might be tempted to do. That is a comfortable thing to do, is it not? For us to just sit in one location forever. Uh, we might come to church services. We may serve God as we come. And, and we might give regularly. And all the while, neglect to make disciples. That is the command, by the way. In the Greek, there's one command, which literally is you make disciples sadly though you think about it though the church is is filled with people who have never led someone to be a reproducing disciple that is the command the command is not for you to just lead people to christ the command is for you to lead them to christ show them the way so that they can go and lead other people to christ and then they can keep reproducing themselves and so in the process we've Many of us have missed the mission given to us by King Jesus. You say, well, what is the mission? Well, this is a costly command that directs every local church and every Christian within that local church to go and make disciples of all people groups. That's literally what all nations means, all people groups. So according to Jesus, to be a disciple then is to make disciples. Scripture, by the way, knows nothing of disciples who are not making disciples. And so if you have never made a reproducing disciple, that is your mission given to you by King Jesus. And so if you're not, uh, if you were to ask Christians what it means to make disciples, you'd probably get different ideas, I would assume. Uh, you might get some unclear answers and, and probably some blank stares by some people, just, 
you know, if you asked them, they would be, their mouths would kind of drop and say, uh, uh, I don't know. And so consequently, we, we need some biblical guidance here about this command. There is one imperative found in verse 19, as I've said. It is make disciples, and that imperative in the Greek is then surrounded by several Greek participles, which shows you and elaborates on that command and tells you how to obey the command. All right? So if you look at your text, you could translate it as going, baptizing, and teaching. Greek participles often end in ing. Those Greek participles are pointing, all pointing to the command, that central command of making disciples. How do I do that? Well, it starts with going, and then you're baptizing, and then you're teaching. So based on this verse, I want to look at four points of disciple-making. Number one, the church must share the word. And please understand, by church, I'm not referring to a denomination. I'm not referring to a building. The church in the Scriptures is clearly made of believers, made of Christians, all the Christians who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. So that that church, these believers, must share the Word. This is truly foundational to making disciples. What do we do? We must speak the Gospel, this good news, as, as we're living this Gospel. It's not enough to just live it, you have to speak it, use words as well. And so this is possible because every believer has the Holy Spirit living inside them. So yet making disciples doesn't end here when people just come and respond to Jesus' gospel. It doesn't end there. See, when people turn from their sin to Christ, the church then must baptize them and then must teach them all of Christ's commands. So if you're the one who leads someone to Christ, you're probably the most likely candidate then to be the one involved in this process to help them grow in the Lord. Well, that leads to the second part of disciple-making, which is this, that the church must baptize believers. Must baptize believers. So if you're a follower of Christ, by the way, and you have never been baptized after your salvation, you need to get baptized. It's not an option. Uh, baptism is where you're identifying yourself, number one, with Christ, but you're also identifying yourself with a local body of believers. So it's an identification vertically as well as horizontally. You must do that. It's, it's not an option. It's a command. And so if you don't, then you're living in disobedience to Jesus Christ. The Bible really knows nothing of unbaptized Christians. We, we see them all getting, uh, after they're saved, they, they rece- we see them receiving the Word, then they're baptized. So baptism, by the way, doesn't save you, of course, but it does identify yourself with Christ and His church. Therefore, think about this. If we're neglecting baptism, what are we doing? We're actually dishonoring Jesus Christ, and we're not obeying Him. And so if you're refusing to identify with Christ in baptism... I at least have to ask the question, are you one of His? If you're refusing to identify with Jesus, then you've got to ask yourself the question, are you a Christian? <laughs> That's what a Christian is, after all, a, a little Christ, a follower of Christ. So we see the church must share the Word, must baptize believers. And number three, the church must teach the Word. This is every believer's responsibility, not just the pastor's. Not just the elders, 
Yes, of course, God has gifted some in the church to actually teach the Bible. You see that in Ephesians 4. He's given certain gifts to, to people to do that, especially the elders. However, every disciple of Jesus should saturate their words with God's words. And you can do this as, as you're just living your life out in this world, as you're working and, and at home and wherever you are. You saturate your, your mind, your words, your conversation with God's words. Our conversations ought to be filled with Scripture as we teach people all that Christ has taught us. Number four, the church must serve the world. So it doesn't end with those first three. Then you must serve the world because Jesus speaks of making disciples of all nations. You see that in, in verse 19? It's all nations. That phrase refers to all people groups, which would include all tribes, family groups, clans, peoples, whatever you want to call them. Uh, I read I read in some statistics that today there's more than 11,000 people groups spread throughout the world. 11,000 people groups. So so even within within a nation itself can be many many people groups. <coughs> so let me be clear here. All right? This command, this specific command here to make disciples is referring to all of those people groups. And as of the year 2013, there were about uh, 6,000 people groups who had still not been reached with the gospel. Had no, no gospel witness whatsoever, apparently. Uh, assuming those, the, the statistics are right. So if that's true, then obedience to King Jesus involves uh, local churches like ours intentionally going after those 6,000 people groups. They need the gospel. They need a messenger to come, as Romans chapter 10 says, to give them this good news. How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they hear unless uh, someone is sent to them? They need this gospel. Let's move on to the fourth implication in our text here. In order for the church to fulfill this great mission, we must depend on Christ's presence. It's interesting, this text is kind of like a sandwich. I don't, I don't want to be demeaning or, or uh, you know, bring it, I don't, I don't, I don't know what else. Uh, how, how else can I illustrate this for you, okay? Think of it as a sandwich, all right? So if you have a yummy sandwich, you've got bread, uh, most likely on both sides, in between. You might have some meat, and, and then you have some condiments to go with your meat. You might have some cheese or some lettuce or tomato or something like that. So if you kind of think of this as, as a sandwich, what we have on... On the outside is that bread. We have, we have. Well, on the bottom is 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 Christ's presence. On the top of that sandwich is Christ's authority, and in between the the meat of it is is this command: you're making disciples. But with that, you get some yummy condiments. So we got things like the going and the baptizing, and the teaching all of Christ's commands. So those are the condiments that just kind of help the sandwich be even more yummy. Well, that's kind of what's going on here. It's interesting how Christ has laid this out for us. We see here ending this, this gospel, according to Matthew, with, with this dependence on Christ's presence. Look at verse 20. It ends with this. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Behold is a really powerful word. It, it's, it's like saying, 
Hey, listen up. I got something really important to tell you. Okay, that's, that's kind of what Behold is doing. Every time you see that in the Bible, it's, it's like shaking you up, getting your attention, getting in your face and saying, you need to hear this. <laughs> that's what Behold is doing here. And that's how it ends. And so we need to be encouraged. This mission's not based on who we are, and it's not certainly not based on what we can do. This mission is assured. We can come with confidence in this mission because of Christ's presence. You say, well, how do we have Christ's presence? Again, it's through His Holy Spirit that He's given to us. And of course, without the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. And Jesus said, without Him, we can do nothing. But with Him, we can do everything that He wants us to do. We can certainly do this mission that He's commanded us to do. So what is this mission based on? Well, this mission is based on who Jesus is. This mission is based on what He is able to do in and through our lives, not based on what who we are and what we can do. Because again, we can do nothing. So, I love all those verses in Scripture that just show Christ's power and His ability and His grace and enabling. I mean, Christ is able, as the Bible says, to do beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. That's Ephesians 3.20. So it's time that Probably we, we need to just kind of set aside our small dreams, our small thinking, our small plans, our worldly ambitions. And we just kind of, we, we, we just, we need to come to God and, and kind of like lay out our checkbook, a blank checkbook for Him and say, what do you want me to do? What do you want our church to do? Now we can sit around and say, well, we're small. You can't do much. Well, who are we looking at when we say that? Are we looking at God or are we looking at ourselves? Look at a powerful God and say, what is He going to do through us? Where is He going to lead us? So together, let's experience the power of His presence with us. I don't know about you, but I want to be part of something that is beyond me. I want to be a part of something where God is glorified, where, where we all just kind of just, you know, Eyeballs bug out, mouths drop to the floor and say, whoa, how did God do that through us? (laughs) I would love for us to just kind of all sit around and have a powwow and and say, wow, God is awesome. Wouldn't you love to do that? I hope you do. I want to be a part of something that requires actually supernatural strength. Uh, I I love to to say there's just, well, I don't have the ability to do that. God's going to do it through me through us. I hope you do too. You don't want to be preoccupied with practices that you can just manage on your own, I hope. You, should, you, you need to be desperate for the power of Jesus Christ. Absolutely desperate. And so my friend, obedience to the Great Commission will not be easy. In fact, it's impossible on, in your own strength. Absolutely impossible. Think about it. You might think that the church as a whole is doing well in this mission, but there's still 6,000 people groups who need to be reached. So it's impossible. It's not going to be easy. It will be costly. It will cost martyrs. It's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to require a lot of effort and prayer on our behalf. But is it worth it? The answer is yes, it is worth it. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. We must be concerned with His business, 
So King Jesus, the Bible says, is going to return one day. Did did you see that? He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I love the way Hebrews says it. Jesus says, hey, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I am always with you. And so King Jesus is going to come. He will come back. He said he would. And his reward is going to be greater than any cost you and I can possibly pay. So here's where I want to end. Together, let's hope in the promise of King Jesus' return for us. Jesus said he would come, didn't he? John 14. He says, I'm going. I'm going to prepare a place. And, and, and when it's done, I'm going to come again. I'm going to receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Do you believe his promise? He's coming. Anytime, any moment, we got to be ready. And so may we live and may we long for that day. Would you say amen? Amen. You know how the Bible ends? Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. So here's the main idea from our text. Let's not forget. Here's the main idea. Because of Christ's authority and presence, all Christians, all local churches, and all the Christians within the local churches are to go and make disciples of all people groups baptizing them and teaching them to observe all of Jesus' commands. May God enable us to fulfill this great mission.